Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, so this is going to be session two, um, studying the communicable attributes of God. Um, we studied a few weeks ago those, that category of God's attributes that are called the incommunicable attributes, those things that, that God does not share with anyone else. They are exclusive to His person. Um, and last week we started talking about the communicable attributes, the, the attributes that God shares with us in the sense that we, we see them, we are recipients of them, and He even calls us to display them or reflect them in the way we live our lives. And, and tonight, uh, there's a lot of different directions we could go, right? I, I mentioned last week that uh, some theologians have up to 20 different communicable attributes that we could think about. I think we, we handled, what, th- four last week, maybe? Something like that. Um, so we could be doing this for a long time. I've chosen to do fewer, um, and we're going to move on in, in our study of systematic theology. Tonight, we're going to talk about the justice and the wrath of God. And then I'm going to answer some of the questions that were posed last week at the end of our session. I took some questions from the floor. I've got a few of those. We're going to talk about those. But let's think about the justice and wrath of God. Is that something that you've studied very deeply? We like to study the love of God. We love to study the grace of God. Um, You might even have an interest in studying the sovereignty of God. But you're likely not to pick up the book on the wrath of God first. And there's a reason for that. There's something in us that kind of recoils. We're we're somewhat apprehensive when we talk about it. When we read it in Scripture, it it might make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, We might might struggle to understand how this attribute of God's character fits with all of the others. It's a difficult thing. Um, And add to that the fact that there is no Christian doctrine more offensive to... Uh, not only you know our humanity in some cases, but to our culture, then the idea of the fierce anger of God being poured out upon sinful humanity. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the wrath of God. Um, even within the church, this doctrine is often downplayed. Um, you don't hear that many sermons preached on this subject. Um, a lot of guys don't even want to talk about it, much less teach on it. However, um, this is an aspect of our God that is seen throughout the Scripture. So if we're going to rightly know Him, which that's what our whole purpose of theology is, to study God and know Him as He's revealed Himself to us, if we're going to rightly know Him, then we're going to have to understand how He's revealed Himself in this way. By the way, the, uh, the whole concept of the justice and wrath of God being something that the church doesn't really want to talk about, that's not a new trend Here's a quote from A.W. Pink. He says, It is sad indeed, and this is from the 1930s. He said, It is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or who at least wish there were no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they 
rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment riding up in their hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there is a severity about the divine wrath that makes it too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with His goodness, and so they seek to banish it from their thoughts. By the way, if I haven't mentioned um, some of these authors along the way, A.W. Pink is one that you would not be wasting your time if you chose to pick up a book and read what he has to say, say about the, the attributes of God, or the sovereignty of God. Outstanding author. But the subject of God's wrath and justice, it is controversial, however, if we're going to know God, and we're going to understand how this thing fits into His divine plan, then we're going to have to study it. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So, justice and wrath. What's the first instance you can think of where the justice and wrath of God is seen in, in the Scriptures? Or, or what passage of Scripture or uh, you know, event in Scripture just stands out to you as a major display of the justice and wrath of God? Noah. Noah and the flood. Yeah. Anything else? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Think of anything else? What about the conquest of Canaan? That's a big issue that a lot of atheist agnostics want to talk about and show. See, this is this is a display of you know the immorality of your God who would do this, and it's just absurd that we're even talking about your God being good, and yet the conquest of Canaan is God utilizing the nation of Israel and their army as an instrument of divine justice. He is punishing them for their sins against Him. Plagues of Egypt. Snakes. Snakes. They are a display of the wrath of God. Mosquitoes. <laughs> you like snakes? Okay, that's fine. You, you can like snakes. It's on the, it's on the recording, so... What about God's wrath and justice even shown to His own people? What was the exile but not God saying, I'm going to do what I promised you I would do, that if you weren't faithful to Me, I would come and I would rebuke you. And if you weren't faithful to Me again, I would rebuke you. And if you weren't faithful to Me again, I would make things hard for you. And if you weren't faithful to Me again, ultimately I would put you out of the land that I had given you. From Genesis all the way through Revelation chapter 20, the subject of God's justice and wrath can be seen just time after time. The whole Bible shows us that, the, that God's justice and wrath are not only a reality, but they are a fair and just response against the sin of mankind. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I know it's a summary passage in many ways, but what the Apostle Paul says is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is pictured here as something that is steadily building. It's like, you've probably heard this illustration before, it's like water building up behind a dam and God is holding that back. He's holding His fierce anger in. He's being patient with us, but it's being built up to be unleashed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
And it is a just and fair response of a holy God to pour out His wrath upon the sins of mankind. The flood of Genesis 6 was a display of divine justice and wrath. The sacrificial system was about justice and wrath. It is, it's pretty horrific to think about. If you go back and you study the sacrifices that need to be made, you just study like the inauguration of the covenant, of the old covenant. I mean, there's blood everywhere. There's sacrifices coming left and right, and then it's not even done until blood is poured against the side of the altar, and then blood is sprinkled all over the people, and the priests have blood on their ears and their toes. I mean, everybody's covered in blood. And it's all about justice, what is required in order to atone for the sins of God's people so that He doesn't pour out His wrath on them. Sacrificial system is about justice and wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah is about justice and wrath. The Israelite wars against the pagan nations is about God's justice and wrath. But the wrath of God is not like all the other attributes of God. And, and maybe I, I've taught on this before. I've said this before. I'm not the only person who holds to this as a way to understand this. Uh, but it might be new to you. I believe that wrath is a secondary attribute. It is a response to something that has occurred in creation. If there were no sin, if there were no rebellion against God, there would be no need for God's wrath. Wrath is tied to His justice and in response to the unjust actions of men, the wrath of God becomes a necessity. Now that sin has entered into creation, the wrath of God is being stored up in heaven and one day it's going to be unleashed. And you not only see it talked about in Romans, you see it throughout the Scriptures. Here's Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. That's a, that's a picture of that wrath being revealed. The wrath of God is His fair and righteous response to sin, and this means that when we think of God's wrath, we should also understand it in its connection to God's justice. So, I see God's wrath as being the response of God to the sins of His people, and it's, it's all wrapped around the fact that our God is just. And because He is just, divine wrath is an extension of the sins of, of, of man. How many of y'all heard this joke? That um, in the Old Testament, God is like a cranky old man. In the New Testament, He's like a smiling hippie. You ever heard that idea? So the, the flood, the destruction of Sodom, the, the conquest of Canaan, all that has caused people to look on the Old Testament I mean, it's, it's so, so much of a common joke that, you know, if you come in and you're angry one day for work, people will be like, well, you're going all Old Testament on them. You know, it's just that kind of notion. It's, it's uh, wrath and anger and God speaking from the mountains and people losing their lives and all of this kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's often understood to be this contrast between this Old Testament understanding of God and then this New Testament understanding of God in His mercy and in His grace and in His love. I'm sure you've heard that false dichotomy, right? Some have even suggested 
Theologians have even suggested that we're dealing with two different gods. There's a different God in the Old Testament and, and than there is in the New Testament. And I'm, I'm just throwing out spitballing stuff that it's part of the theological gobbledygook that gets written and, you know, spread out there. But I think this is an absolute misconception. It's completely flawed. Uh, but it, it reflects a flawed understanding of the fact that God rules over creation from beginning to end as the rightful and righteous judge of all the earth. The fact that God is righteous means that He always acts in accordance with what is right, and He is the standard to determine what is right and what is wrong. The whole discussion of God's wrath is couched in the fact that as the Creator of all things, our holy God stands as the righteous judge over all that He has made. And this theme can be seen throughout the Scriptures as well. In Genesis 2, it was God who set forth the rules right, of how Adam and Eve were to live within the garden. Um, they were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They were to um, tend the garden and keep it. They were to eat the fruit from these trees and not from that tree. God established the rules. And as such, He's establishing Himself, showing Himself to be the, the one who declares what is, what is right and what is not. He's the judge. And then when they fail, they answer to Him. So He's the judge in both senses. Um, in Noah's day, it was God who judged the sinful intentions of the thoughts of men. That's Genesis 6-5. Um, and it was God who rendered the verdict that they were all guilty and deserved death. We could do this the same way we did with just looking at um, God's wrath being displayed. The idea of God being just and the idea of God being our lawgiver and being the judge who holds us accountable to that law, that's seen throughout the Scriptures. It's not just something that we see in the Old Testament. It's something that we see throughout. In fact, I would say that in the New Testament, the Gospels kind of ramp up our understanding of the justice of God being poured out because it becomes far more acute. The Old Testament prophets would talk about that great day of the Lord, that great day of God's wrath, and in, cer in certain smaller instances, the people of God even experienced that. But when Jesus comes on the scene, no one in Scripture talks about hell and God's judgment more than Jesus. No one speaks more clearly on this subject than Jesus in his parables and his stories and his references to the universal day of judgment judgment and here's why I'm saying that the justice of God and the judgment of God these are not just Old Testament concepts they are seen throughout the scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus mentions hell three times as a way to motivate his audience to take their sin seriously and that's just in the Sermon on the Mount that's just the first thing he does in Luke, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Y'all know that story. And the setting behind that story. The entire story is set under the guise that there are two individuals, one poor, one rich, they both die. One goes to Abraham's bosom, the other goes into a place of torment. And the whole story is told from that perspective. In the Revelation. Well, I just read a couple of passages from Romans and 2 Thessalonians, but in the Revelation, we, we're going to see depictions of the, the divine judgment of God being poured out on all those who rejected Christ 
including Satan and the demons, and it is a horrifying picture. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see this as a constant theme, that God is the judge who declares the rules, what is right and what is wrong, and God is the one who has the justice and the holiness and the authority to carry out the punishment against sin that is required. By the way, in the New Testament, it is revealed that the one appointed to judge the living and the dead is none other than Jesus Himself. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 5. So make sure that we're not just looking at God the Father as being the God of wrath and justice and the judge. Jesus takes part in that. He has a unique part in that. Uh, but here's how we know that. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. But then he goes on and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And then Jesus says, by, by the way, guys, don't marvel at this. Which is what they would have done. Jesus is saying, here's a man sitting in front of them saying the God the Father has given me the right and authority to execute His judgment upon the world. And they're saying, wait a minute, what are you talking about? He says, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all those who are in tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the res resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection that leads to judgment. So Jesus is what we call Him the agent of God's judgment. When He comes in the end on that white war horse with a sword coming out of His mouth and a tattoo on His thigh to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, He is the instrument of God's judgment upon the sins of man. Jesus is, so here's what that means. Jesus is the divine Savior sent into the world to rescue us from our sins and He is the divinely appointed judge who will judge even the secret thoughts of men with perfect justice. Make sure you have the right understanding of, of Jesus. Not the ethereal, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, always crying Jesus who sprinkles fairy dust on us because we're all good and nice people. No, He is the one who is coming to make war against His enemies. That's the picture of the Scriptures, the, the full picture that the Scriptures give us. But what gives Jesus the right to judge? I'm going to do a little little offshoot. Um, what gives Jesus the right to judge? Number one, He has the authority to judge. How do we know He has the authority to judge? Given to Him by the Father. Yeah, it was given to Him by the Father. You know, you know the passage? Matthew 28, 18, Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go. So it's the Great Commission. And Jesus is, is acknowledging in that that now that He's accomplished redemption through His death, burial, and resurrection, the Father has now bestowed upon Him the authority over heaven and earth. And that authority extends to judgment, as we, we just read from John chapter 5. Christ has been given authority over all of creation. That makes Him the rightful lawgiver and judge over all creation. And we've been studying this throughout the Revelation as well. Number two, 
He is the righteous judge. 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, An unjust judge... No, I'm sorry, this is a quote from Packer. Um, An unjust judge who has no interest in seeing right triumph over wrong is by biblical standards a monstrosity. That's a quote from Packer, J.I. Packer. But Jesus is not a cold and uncaring judge. How do we know that? What kind of a judge is he? Perfect and righteous. Perfect and righteous. He's a humble servant. Washes the feet of his friends. He's loving and compassionate. He's patient. He weeps when he sees the sins in the world. He defends the cause of the, the downtrodden. I mean, this, this is Jesus, and he is the righteous judge. He's not a, a monster. His wrath is tempered by his holiness. He shows no partiality, though. He hates what is evil, he loves what is good, and he will execute judgment in the perfection of his holiness. So he has the authority to judge. He is a righteous judge. He's wise and he knows all things. I've said this before. This might be new, it might not be. There will be no jury in heaven. God opens the books and that's all he needs. Right? You're not going to be cross-examining anybody in heaven. He knows everything. He's seen everything. It's all written down. He will examine the deeds of men and He will execute judgment accurately. There's no one who will be able to declare to, to Jesus at that moment, this is not fair. He'll just show it to us. He is wise. He knows all things. And then also we know this about Jesus based upon the prophecies made about Him, based upon the teachings in the New Testament. He will right all wrongs. In other words, He will be perfectly just. Every injustice, every act of oppression, every wicked act of violence, every violation of human dignity, every wrong will be righted. Every sin will be perfectly charged to the guilty. And their sentence will be carried out in full. So when Christ comes to carry out the judgment that has been building, the judgment that's been withheld by the patience and mercy of God, we can be certain that everyone will be held accountable to their deeds and true justice will be carried out in full. So, I like to say this. When we think about justice, when we think about the wrath of God, it's, it's right for us to understand that history is moving in a direction. And, and that direction is going to be punctuated by the return of Christ, the imminent return of Christ. And when that occurs, the judgment of God will fall. So history is moving in the direction of good triumphing over evil. History is moving in the direction of God returning in the person of Christ to judge the world authoritatively, decisively, and finally. But wait a minute. I mentioned earlier all those metaphors about hell, specifically about hell. When you think about when you you know, think about those stories and you think about the descriptions of this burning lake of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, what do you think about? Do you think that those metaphors fall short of the reality, or do you think that they over-exaggerate the reality? Surely they aren't real. I mean, surely God's wrath is not worse than the metaphors. 
I mean, surely what Jesus is doing in those stories is he's just, he's just making it horrific for us so that we'll actually repent. First of all, in my response to that question, and I'm glad y'all had that question. I think it's a great question. <laughs> it's important that we define God's wrath and how it is different from our wrath, right? So the term itself is problematic for us because when we think about wrath, or we think about our own wrath, or we think about our own fierce anger, our own rage, it is, we think about a person who's completely lost control. And we know that because we've experienced it. Either being a recipient of it or being you know, a perpetrator of it. We, we know what anger looks like and we know what unjust anger looks like. And wrath brings to mind that irrational reaction that is in many ways out of proportion to the crime. But that is not the picture that God paints in the scriptures about his wrath. Like the other attributes of God, his wrath is perfect. God exists. All of the attributes of God, the communicable as well as the incommunicable attributes of God, they exist within His person in a state of perfection. He's not learning. He's not growing. He, he didn't move from a state of immaturity to maturity. He has always maintained all of those attributes in that state of perfection. It, it is perfectly right and necessary for us to understand that God's wrath is the just reaction to the sin committed by man. Oh, here was one of the questions that came up last week. And the young lady who asked it was, is not here tonight. So I'll just tell her I answered it. Um, so the question was, okay, if we're thinking about the anger of God, the justice of God as being a communicable attribute, well, how, how do we show anger in a way that is righteous? Y'all heard the category of righteous anger? Um, so let's talk about that for a moment. There's two different times in Scripture where we see the command or the statement, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, that kind of thing. So it's in Psalm chapter 4, or Psalm 4, verse 4, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. And, and the implication seems to be that we have the capacity to be angry in a righteous way. But how do we know if our anger is truly righteous anger? Now, you might know that there are several different ideas about this. Uh, we've got some great resources out there. Actually, some of those counseling resources. I thought I brought one with me. We have a little booklet on anger that's actually really good. And it talks about how we can deal with our anger in righteous ways. And it, it asks all these little questions to help us think through, you know, it, it, is your anger directed at this? Is your anger motivated in this way? Is your anger really a reflection of being frustrated or angry against sin, sin against God, all those different things? But how do we know? God's anger, so if we're going to compare our anger to God's anger to determine if it's righteous or not, we know this about God's anger. God's anger is directed at sin. Right? God is not that grumpy guy that just gets all angry and flies off the handle. There's a, a proper motivation a just reaction to what has happened. God's anger is directed at sin. So the first question that we must ask when we feel anger welling up in our hearts is, am I angry at sin? Righteous anger is not the road rage you feel when someone cuts you off, even if they broke the law, right? It is not the frustration you feel when your kids make too much noise while you're trying to nap, even though they are supposed to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's 
not the same thing. And it's not the anger that wells up in your heart when things don't work. Because this world is just filled with brokenness, right? That's, that's not righteous anger. Righteous anger is the controlled, biblically informed longing for justice that comes as a result of man sinning against God. And we have some instances in Scripture where, where I believe we do see righteous anger. So my position is that there is such a thing that we can exhibit as righteous anger. And there are some theologians who don't believe that. But I think we see some evidence of it. And not just in Jesus. John the Baptist. He was angry when the religious hypocrites came to him and he called out to them in fierce anger. He, the, the scripture says he burned with anger against them and he called out to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So in that passage, John the Baptist, whom Jesus says is the most righteous man that's ever lived, never been born of woman, he displays righteous anger towards the hypocrites. I believe that's what he's doing there. And that's from Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. Do you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? And, and what did he see? Yeah, he saw a golden calf. He hadn't been gone that long, but he'd been gone long enough that they decided, hey, we need to do something about this. We need to make a golden calf. We need to call it Yahweh. We need to start worshiping around it. And Moses comes down. He sees that. And the scripture says that he too burned with anger. And do you remember what he did? He threw down the tablets written by the finger of God. He took the calf. He melted it down, ground it up, put it in the water, and made them eat that. Now, understand what happens to the things you eat. And the picture that Moses is trying to teach them there. You worship this thing, now it's in the latrine. That's what that is. I know that's graphic, that's what he does. But not only that, but also, he, he decided that, that he was going to separate the peoples, and he had the priests on this side put a sword on their hip. Do y'all remember that? And go through and execute the individuals who, led, who were leaders of that insurrection and that idolatry. And he spilled their blood that day. And that's a picture of God's justice. And it was motivated, in many ways, by Moses. When men and women commit evil in the world, it is right for us to feel anger toward that sin. But that's not the only emotion that we should feel. When Jesus was dying on the cross, He asked the Father to forgive His executioner. They were sinning against God. They were sinning against Jesus. And Jesus turned around. So He gives us a better way. He shows us a better way. It's right for us to feel angry toward sin. But that's not the only emotion we should feel. Jesus feels and shows compassion toward them. And I think we should follow His example. When God chose not to destroy Nineveh, what did Jonah do? He complained. He wanted them to die. He wanted fire to come down from heaven. He was so angry that it didn't happen. He was not going to you know, rise to the top of the charts on being the most you know, profound prophet of the day. He was going to lose his credibility because God didn't destroy them. And God says to... He even numbers all the people. He numbers all the cattle. And He says, do you not have any compassion for them? So God rebukes Nineveh for holding on to this sinful 
anger that he would have called righteous anger, and he calls upon him to be compassionate. Actually, that's that's the main point of that book is the compassion that God feels. Even our righteous anger is often mixed with sin. This is from R.C. Sproul. And then I'm going to get back to our subject. I have no idea what time it is. Okay. Scott, our clock's broken. So I'm going to blame it on the clock. But uh, here's a quote from R.C. Sproul that I think just kind of takes some of my thoughts and, and says them better than I could. Due to our fallenness, we are prone to combine sin with our anger. So we must be encouraged repeatedly not to break God's law in our ire. Now, R.C. Sproul agrees with me that we can show righteous anger, but that often our sin gets in the way and leads us away from righteous anger to other forms of sin. So he quotes Ephesians 4. He also quotes the other passage from Psalm 4. He says, We are not necessarily upset at the things that our Lord hates just because we are mad, so we must always check our hearts to make sure our anger is an expression of righteousness. If we are angry without just cause, we give Satan an opportunity to destroy our lives and reputations. Human beings can abuse any legitimate emotion, especially anger, so we must also set it aside as soon as we can. Our anger may be godly and righteous at the start, but it can be easily warped into a grudge and malicious designs instead of hoping for the offender to repent. When we no longer hope for the sinner's repentance, we are letting the destructive root of bitterness take hold. And he quotes Hebrews 12, 15. So I think that's a, an appropriate caution in this whole idea of whether or not we can show righteous anger. I do believe it is possible. But I think very often we go beyond that righteous anger into other forms of sin, or to, to forms of sin, rather than being moved to compassion. God's wrath is not mixed with sin in any way. Ours is, God's is not. The fullness of God's wrath is an exact proportion to what each person deserves. But how do we reconcile this with the descriptions of God's wrath that we see in the Bible? So I'm going to go back to that, that idea that the metaphors in Scripture, are they truly representative of the reality or are they exaggerating the reality? In the New Testament, the descriptions of God's judgment are graphic and they are fearsome. Hell is the place where God's wrath is poured out. It's described as an unquenchable fire like a furnace a place of smoke and deep darkness, a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. I'm just quoting different passages of Scripture. A place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. In short, it is a place of eternal conscious torment. Oddly enough, some people will read these descriptions and use them to soften the reality. And yet, that's not how the Bible uses metaphors. The illustrative force of the descriptions is seen in that these illustrations always fall short of the reality because that's the way the biblical symbols work. The function of symbols is to point beyond themselves to a higher, more intense state of actuality than the symbol itself can contain. That again is a quote from Marcy Sproul. So if we're looking at, let's say, the Revelation, the description, the illustrative metaphors of heaven in the Revelation are a flawed human attempt to describe something that's indescribable. So what we understand is that the reality is going to go beyond the metaphor. And the same is true for the judgment of God. The reality goes beyond the illustration. And I believe that the reason Jesus describes hell in such horrifying ways in Scripture is so that we would pursue heaven at all costs. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. Hell is a place 
where there is no comfort or escape and hell can be avoided. So Jesus, the lawgiver and the eternal judge, is also, like I mentioned earlier, and as we know, Jesus is the one who came to rescue us from that judgment. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that we don't have to pay that price ourselves. He came to rescue us from the awful reality that our sin deserves. In Christ, the divine justice and divine wrath meet. There is no sin against God that will go unpunished. No sin against God that will go unpunished. Either we will pay the price for our sin in eternity, or Christ paid the price for us upon the cross. That's all we've got. Jared Wilson in his book, The Storytelling God, summarizes this whole thing by saying, there is a glad escape from the eternal condemnation in the safety of the Savior who has taken that condemnation for us upon Himself, conquering death and hell, yes, even for you, if you want Him. So that's my lesson on justice and wrath. And I know there's a lot more that we can say. You probably have some questions, even though I know I've answered several of them. It's almost 8 o'clock. I have two questions that came to me last week. Do y'all have more questions, new questions, or do y'all want me to answer those questions? Here are the questions. One was about God changing His mind. Right? Somebody asked, well, I read in the Scriptures that God relented, and we were talking about God's immutability, meaning God does not change. So how does that square with that? So I can try to give you an answer to that question. The other question was about the sovereignty of God. Somebody asked about the power of God. What does it mean that God is sovereign? So those are the two questions I'm prepared to answer. Do y'all want me to do that, or do y'all have other things y'all want to talk about? I'm good either way. Nobody's going to vote? Answer the questions. Answer the questions. All right, here we go. Let's do this. Uh, it wasn't your question, so I'm just you know, giving you an option. So when I open the floor, sorry, this thing's messing me up. Uh, when I open the floor, I got, I think, three questions, maybe four. One of them I'm gonna, we're going to answer down the road. But the first one was about God changing his mind. And I'm sure you thought about this at some point. Um, I, I referenced a couple of weeks ago a book, big, thick book called The Hard Sayings of the Bible. And it's got like four authors. It's by InterVarsity Press. If you don't have a book like that in your library at home, it's a good thing to have, The Hard Sayings of the Bible. Let's see. It's, um, it's in my notes. Hard Sayings of the Bible is the title of the book. The, the, the primary author is Walter Kaiser. K-A-I-S-E-R. Anyway, it's a great little book. And it just, not only does it give you some like categorical ways of thinking about the hard questions in Scripture, but it goes from Genesis all the way through Revelation, just talking through and explaining a lot of stuff. If you don't have that kind of a book in your library, but you've got lots of questions and you've got kids, I would recommend you get that book. It's a great little book. So, well, it's not actually a little book. It's a doorstop. Uh, but this question of, does God change his mind? It comes from a, a, at least a couple of passages. Probably the, the most prominent one is in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, after the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and, and that whole thing happens in verses 1 through 4, God saw that the heart of man was only evil continually. That's Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And then in chapter 6, verse 6, having seen the wickedness of man, the Bible says, or it actually quotes God as saying, that he regretted having made mankind. 
Now, some translations use the word repented. Some translations use the word that God was grieved that he had made mankind. So how are we to understand that passage, especially given the fact that we studied a couple of weeks ago the immutability of God? Immutability means that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is everlasting to everlasting. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. God is saying that directly. Seems clear enough, right? So what about those two or three passages where it, it shows God grieving, regretting, or even repenting? What does that mean? Well, to add a little more confusion to this, theologians often refer to the doctrine of divine impassibility. I'm just going to throw out all kinds of weird stuff tonight. Have y'all heard that? The doctrine of divine impassibility. Divine impassibility is one that a lot of theologians reject, and a lot of theologians hold on to it, but they have to define it a certain way. Divine impassibility states that God is not capable of being acted upon or affected emotionally by anything in creation. Now, I never like to start off with a definition that says that God is not capable of something. I don't think that's a very good definition, and that's part of the problem. But last week, I read from the 1689 Confession of Faith, and there was a line in there that went like this, talking about God. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him alone. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or passions. Do you all remember that statement? Has no body, parts, or passions. And by passions there... They're referring to changeable emotions. What is that all about? All right, well, now that I've thoroughly confused you, uh, let's address the, the idea of divine impassibility. And, and I'll just say this, the Bible is filled with passages that describe the emotions of God. So the idea that God does not possess Pure emotions, I think, is a wrong idea, and I don't think that that's what the Westminster Divines nor the 1689 authors are trying to say. Uh, we read all over the Scripture about the love of God, the compassion of God, His, His anger, His wrath, His jealousy, um, His fatherly care. All of these things are describing the character of God. I think it's best to understand that God does express emotion, but not in the same way that we do. And here's where the problem comes in. His emotions are not felt or experienced without respect to His other attributes. Whereas we can become completely overwhelmed by our emotions and, and throw logic completely out of the door. I have a daughter. I hope she doesn't listen to this recording. Um, no, it's okay. We can just completely give ourselves to, to one emotion and be dominated and controlled by that emotion, God is not subject to that kind of domination. God's emotional attributes are expressed in a state of divine perfection. His jealousy is never irrational. It's always righteous and holy. His wrath is never out of proportion to what is right. His passions do not disturb or cause an imbalance in His character. He's not tossed around by every wind of emotion. He expresses every emotion that exists within His character in a state of perfection. He doesn't need to learn how to control Himself like we do, like we, do, like we teach our children and we teach ourselves. Because in Him, all that He has exists within that state of perfect emotional control. 
Right? So when we understand the emotions of God, don't attribute your own struggle with emotions to Him. He's not subject to that. He's not limited the way that we are limited. Now let's go back to Genesis 6 and try to make sense out of it. What's going on when the Scriptures say that He regrets that He made mankind? So the Hebrew word, uh, word the root of the word, um, that's used to describe God's emotion there, and, and not just there, but in others, it expresses the idea, it's, it's, um, it expresses the idea of a person breathing. Like when Jenny sees her boys doing something that she's told them not to do for the tenth time, and she looks at them and goes, <sighs> right, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, it's an expression of frustration. Um, it's a display of a sigh. And that's the word, that's the idea that's trying to be communicated specifically in Genesis 6 and in a couple of other places. It suggests a physical display of feelings such as sorrow, which in the case of God would be an anthropomorphism. That's a word we've heard. Okay. Meaning that we're attributing a human emotion to a divine being. And we know that's a problem because God doesn't, ex he doesn't experience emotions in the way that humans experience emotion. He experiences emotion in the way that God experiences emotion. And yet, the biblical authors will often attribute human emotional swings to God in that particular way. We know that God doesn't cross His arms and huff when something doesn't go His way. We, we know this about God. He is unchanging. He is patient. He is long-suffering. The idea there is he has a long nose. He can, he can put up with us for a long time. But he does express emotion in a way that is consistent with his character and appropriate to the situation. The biblical terminology may be confusing and the theological impassibility and immutability and all that might be confusing. But the point is to demonstrate that God does express emotion. He's not immune to these things, but he is also not ruled by them. His purposes do not change. His character does not change. But he can and does express emotion towards the actions and needs of his people. And we see this in the language of Scripture. Um, and the language of Scripture shows a limit through human language to accurately describe a divine attribute. We can't adequately communicate what it's like for God to feel emotions. So we use the words that we would use to describe ourselves. Any questions? Well, I mean, you've got a ton of questions, but there's, a, there's just a, there's an answer to that question. And I, I'll just be honest with you. Um, that's a question I haven't heard in a long time. I haven't thought about that one in a while. It's good to be asked a question that I hadn't heard or thought about in 15 years or so. Um, but yeah, that little book I told you about, it does a pretty good job of answering those questions according to what's going on in the text. Right, what about the sovereignty of God? You want to talk about the sovereignty of God? The question was kind of asked, it wasn't really a question, it was more along the lines of, I'd like to know more about the power of God and the sovereignty of God. Okay. Um, I, we're familiar with the word sovereignty. It's not a foreign term to us. What does sovereignty mean? Anybody want to take a stab at that? What does it mean for God to be sovereign? In control. Okay. Who do we refer to as sovereign? Kings. Yeah. What does that imply about God? 
Yeah. Okay. He rules over everything. Any other thoughts? Sovereignty does carry with it the, the reality of God exercising his power. That's what a king does. A king exercises power. Sovereignty honestly falls into the category of an incommunicable attribute. It's not one that he communicates with us. We're part of his sovereign plan, but he doesn't like, grant us his omnipotence. And that's where sovereignty falls. Sovereignty falls into the category of God's omnipotence. In other words, it's, it's a way for us to describe the all-powerful work of God to accomplish his specific Purpose. So omnipotence is a big word. It, it, it encompasses him being all-powerful, and sovereignty is a way to describe that. This means, or sovereignty means, that God is able to do all his holy will. You know, heard that language before? And nothing can stop him from accomplishing his holy purpose. Now, the skeptic might ask the question differently. The, the illogical question that often comes from the skeptic is something like, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Right? And let's acknowledge that the Bible does say that there are things that God can't do. God cannot lie. Cannot sin. He cannot die because he is from everlasting to everlasting. He cannot... Be God and not be God at the same time. He cannot act against his own nature. He cannot violate his own will. So that the question, can God make a rock too big and all of those different things, they're, they're illogical because they, they reject our understanding of the nature and character of God. There are certain things God cannot do. We don't have a problem with that. But when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we talk about the power of God, the all all-powerful nature of God, the omnipotent nature of God, the point is that in God's sovereignty, we are saying that God can do all of His holy will, and He absolutely exercises authority to accomplish that will, and nothing can stand in the way of Him accomplishing His purpose. Are y'all familiar with Abraham Kuyper? You ever heard that name before? Dutch theologian, Calvinist theologian. He was a minister and a politician, and I think he got it right when he said this. I love this quote. He said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. No part of creation stands outside the scope of His control, nor His divine decree. His purpose shall stand, the Scripture says. God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. He is the Lord God Almighty, which suggests that He is in a position of having all power and all authority. Lord God Almighty. With man, things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. Matthew 19.6 So God's power is infinite. His power is unlimited. And His sovereignty tells us that He exercises the freedom of His will with absolute authority. He accomplishes all His purposes. No man stands in His way. Nothing in all creation can stand in the way of Him accomplishing His divine purpose. Now, we generally speak that way. We say things like, God can accomplish all His holy will, or God can do all His holy will, rather than simply saying, God can do everything. Because that's a better description of what the, the Bible tells us about God's power. 
God's power is not just directed in some like rogue way. God's power is directed according to the purpose of His will. So just read Ephesians 1 and notice how many times you see that language. For the purpose of His will, for the praise of His glorious grace, according to the purpose of His will. Just over and over and over again, all of the things God does in exerting His sovereign power are being exerted according to His purpose. Now we might not fully understand His purpose. We might not even like some of His purpose in our particular lives at a particular time, but we are powerless to stand against it. God is not bound by anyone. He's not bound by anything. He is absolutely free to do whatever He chooses. The Scriptures tell us that He is free to dispense mercy to whomever He wills, and He is free to harden the heart of whomever He wills. That's a weighty truth, right? And there are plenty of people who don't want anything to do with that. Even those who profess faith in Christ don't want anything to do with that idea that God has mercy on whom He has mercy and hardens whom He hardens. And yet, the Scriptures teach that both in the Old Testament and the New. Now, I think we would all agree that it would be an immensely frightening and hopeless reality if a being so free and powerful were not also holy. If God exhibited His power in a way that was evil and wicked, we have absolutely no hope. And yet, God's sovereignty, like all of His other character attributes, are still bound to His holiness. That God is holy means that He is separated from sin and capable of being influenced by it. So God's decisions, His will, His purposes never miss the mark. Right? That's what sin is, missing the mark. God's decisions, God's will, God's purposes never miss the mark. Daniel tells us that the Lord our God is righteous in all His works, though we have not obeyed His voice. And John helps us to understand that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Even when we don't understand everything that is going on, we know that God is good all the time. So we can be assured of that. That God's sovereignty is perfectly coupled with His goodness, perfectly coupled with His grace and His mercy and His justice and His wrath. God exercises all of these attributes simultaneously and perfectly. God is incomprehensible. We can't understand that. We can't get our minds and hands, and we can't even fashion language in such a way that can do justice to try and help us understand these concepts. The goal of studying theology is to know God, and I think if we're doing it rightly, we come to the end and we're just overwhelmed by the reality of how massive and glorious God is. If we come out of this and we think, wow, that's really small. I'm not really impressed. I've got all my questions answered. Then I don't know that we're doing it right. God exercises all of these things simultaneously and perfectly. There are no maverick emotions in God that disrupt His plan, nor are there any forces in the universe that can stand in His way. He alone is God and there is no one like Him. All right, I'm done. Those are my two answers to those two questions. So next week, by the way, I, I'll, we'll turn this off in a minute. We'll take some questions if you want to talk some more. But next week, Jeff, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I'm talking about the attributes of God to talking about the person of God. We're going to, Jeff's going to introduce the, the Trinity 
And then he's going to spend a couple of weeks talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So that's where we're going for the next four weeks. And then I'm going to come in at the end, because we only have like five weeks left. I'm going to come in at the end and we're going to talk about the works of God. Um, specifically creation and redemption. So just so you all know, that's where we're going to be. And I uh, hope you'll be back.